Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out. What a nice crowd this is for you. Wow. And thank you, virtual audience, for joining us. Um, I'm going to read a bio that Alex has given me, right? Do we want to call him Alexander or Alex? We're going with Alex. Okay. Alex Sammartino was born in Rhode Island and grew up in Arizona. That starts. That sounds like the start of a coming-of-age story, doesn't it? Set the stage. Born in Rhode Island, grew up in Arizona. You could do a lot with that. He attended public schools in the Cave Creek, Paradise Valley, and Scottsdale School Districts. Graduated from Chaparral High School, which is right around the corner of where I live, where he was a member of the 2009 5A Division II State Championship football team. <laughs> Oh, if we'd only done this on Super Bowl Sunday, what a shame that we missed that, right? After studying at Eastern Arizona College and Glendale Community College, he graduated from Syri Syracuse University, summa cum laude. Very nice. How come it wasn't magna cum laude? <laughs> ah, I've got it backwards. Okay. As a double major with degrees in philosophy and English, Alex then attended Syracuse for his Master of Fine Arts and Fiction. Last act's his debut novel has been called Exceptional by the New York Times, A Journey Across the Arizona Desert by the New Yorker, Irreverent, boy, can I testify to that, by the Chicago Review of Books, Wrenching by the Minneapolis Star Tribune, and a Holy American novel about salvation by the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He actually lives in Brooklyn, New York, with his wife, Kelly, hi, Kelly, and their cat, Godot, right? Did you really? I, well, I was. No, I wasn't going to use that line. Shame on you. That's really hackneyed. <laughs> I'm not sure that the football belongs in this literary biography. Oh, absolutely. We have a lot of uh, champions here. So oh, like it was, it was okay. Necessary. So it's the salute to the bros and has. <laughs> oh, oh. I have I have two nephews who went to Chaparral. So let me give this back to you since it's a priceless document. Clearly, right. So um, when his publisher approached me to host this event, uh, they pointed out to me, A, it was set in Phoenix, so it was kind of a natural, and B, that he actually had a fan base in Phoenix, and so here you are. So how delightful that that turned out to be true. I hate it when publishers lie to me, which happens a lot more often than you might think. <laughs> <laughs> right. So why don't you talk to us about, this is your first novel. Um, did you have any writing experience, short fiction, or anything before you wrote a full-length novel? Uh, I had a failed novel. I had just a lot of failures, I would say. Uh, and I think that's kind of like how my writing process is, just trying things, seeing how they go, and then kind of reworking them. So, yeah, I, uh, with this book, um, I kind of was banging my head against the wall. For a while, I wasn't really seeing it. I knew I wanted to write about a father and a son. That was really important to me, and that's, like, fundamentally what the book is about. But, uh... I just couldn't see the kind of pathway in. Um, so I, it was that first sentence that just kind of, once I had that, everything else started to come with it. And um, as I started to like write more and more about the desert, which was something I really hadn't done previously, that kind of like um, helped solidify and organize everything for me. You know, I've talked to probably hundreds of debut authors. Nearly everyone has at least one failed project before. It takes a long time to learn how to write a book, you know, and it, I would be deeply suspicious if this were your, like, first ever. I would think AI might have infiltrated Syracuse University earlier than we thought. So since you have mentioned the first line, why don't you just read the first line? We're not big on reading. We'd rather talk to him, but I think reading the first line sounds appropriate. It's very short, so... 
Maybe I'll do the first paragraph. Go for it. Um, saved, yes. David Rizzo knew his son's resurrection had saved his gun shop. The arrival of this fact, abrupt, vivid, brought him to silent tears behind the wheel of his unreliable El Dorado. He drove through the depthless desert sky, wiping his face, the world a smear of bare earth and sunlight. Rizzo's firearms rescued, his son not dead. It settled between his stomach and his throat, this stark revelation. Very nice. Yay, round of applause. Yay. So being, I'm pretty sure I must be, I am in fact the oldest person in this room. My vision of Phoenix is dramatically, I'm 83. Um, my vision of Phoenix is dramatically different than any of you probably, most of you would recognize because I first came here in 1950 when I was 10. We flew into Terminal 1, which was an outdoor thing. You know, the luggage was all outdoors. Um, 22nd, 20th Street was the city limit. We stayed at the Biltmore Apartments. You had to take a buckboard to go to the Camelback Inn. Scottsdale had two paved streets and was unincorporated. And to go to Taliesin was basically a day trip. And I wouldn't have even thought of going up to Cave Creek or Carefree. So it's very hard for me, you know, at the 73 years later, to be looking at Phoenix. And one of the lines I've always particularly liked is my uncle, who was a noted um, gourmet and lived in Chicago, came out here. I threw a 70th birthday party for my dad at the Arizona Biltmore, and my uncle came out. And he was here for a week. When he left, he said, Arizona, he said, Phoenix. Many restaurants, none of them memorable. <laughs> and I have to say that was probably true for a very long time. And now look at us. We're a foodie capital. You know, we have ethnic cuisine everywhere. We have famous chefs, you know, okay, we have Sam Fox, you know, the whole bit. And all of a sudden, here we are, the largest city geographically, bigger than Los Angeles now, Metro Phoenix, and the fifth biggest city in population. And we still have no public transportation except for ASU students who can go from one campus to another, um, which is one reason we still stream all our events, because for many of you, it's a serious drive to come down here, to come to an author event and go home. It's a lot more fun to stay home in your jammies, you know, have a drink, watch it on, um, on your smart TV, which you can do. Um, so I think it's a tribute to you that this many people actually made the trip. Yeah, thank you all for coming, and uh, thank you, Barbara, for having me. I told Barbara this before, and other people have heard me say this, but this is the bookstore my mom would always take me to whenever I come back, so it's very important for me to do this here. And uh, I think what you're saying about Phoenix is one of the challenges to write about it. Mm. It's why I was reluctant to write about it for a long time, because it just felt kind of amorphous, and it was so big and so diverse, and this great kind of microcosm for America itself. Like, it's a really young city, and... The state itself is very young. The land, obviously not, but the state is. And Actually, it was its birthday uh, yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. Um, so I, I always think about this place as um, kind of raising the question of what it means to be an American all the time just by living here and just by kind of going around. And that really fascinates me and motivates me in the work. Um, it's kind of one of the things I think a novel could do is take on these really big questions and even in a short space try to interrogate them a little bit. So your vision of Phoenix in this book was also, for all I just had to say about watching it grow, I have lived in Paradise Valley in North Scottsdale almost the entire time. You were in Cave Creek, and that's not the Phoenix you're writing about in this book. 
And so it was interesting to see this picture of Phoenix from your perspective, at least writing about it. Yeah, I think um, this has been a place that has meant a lot to me and has really informed like how I just view art in general because the Phoenix here, as much as it's a spare place, um, and there's not, you know, it's the desert. We're not supposed to be here, but there's always this tension between civilization growing and growing and growing. These crazy mountains that you're always looking at. So it's like spare and Baroque, and that's really interesting to me. And uh, I think about this as like, you know, New York is like what, what people built, and this is what God made. And we're kind of like always just coming up against that here. Everything feels very significant in, in Phoenix in the same way. I actually think it's like very similar to New York in that way. We're just walking down the street is you're looking at this giant tower of rock and that's incredible. And most people in the country don't ever see something like that. Um, so I, I think it's a really a striking place. It feels like inherently dramatic. Um, and so once I kind of came around to the idea of writing about it, it was just a matter of um, kind of, like I said, trying seeing where I got, what kind of stuck, and then expanding from there. I think you did a brilliant job, and that reminds me, when I started the bookstore in 1989, New York didn't think anyone who lived here actually read books. My husband grew up on Park Avenue, and he said to me, try to remember that when New Yorkers look across the Hudson, the only thing they see is California. And I, it took two years, I think, before I could convince the New York publisher to send an author here in case they ran into a reader. Um, and now, you know, here we are with, you know, Yvonne's almost every night. It was so hard to get them to think of Phoenix as anything other than kind of a, a little cow town. They just couldn't adjust to the idea of a metropolitan Phoenix, you know, where there are people on vacation, there are people here for health reasons. There's a big reading population. I tried to convince them. No, they said, you know, so... I'm really happy now that, you know, I have somebody living in Brooklyn who's actually writing about Phoenix. Yeah, there are two, um, I think, like, great Arizona novels. And the first, uh, Dennis Johnson, did you ever meet him before he passed away? Um, I had the chance to meet him. He was my hero. He wrote a book called Jesus' Son. Um, it's from the Velvet Underground song. Uh, he got sober in Scottsdale. His parents lived here. And he lived here for a long time. And his first novel, Angels, is set mostly here. There's, like, a... Um, it's a little bit of a road trip novel, but it largely takes place here. And I remember him describing Scottsdale Community College, uh, this was in the 90s, and being like, you know, it's, there was just something that emotionally felt really striking to me about it, and it felt so rare. It's just not something that people write about very much. Uh, not many people have experienced it outside of, like, the Western world. It kind of exists in its own genre. Um, so there was Angels, which really kind of made me want to try something like this. And then Don DeLillo has a novel, Underworld, um, it's largely set in Phoenix. He's a waste management executive and his vision of Phoenix and that is, is fairly bleak. It's kind of like where you go and, and life is ending. And, uh, I think, you know, not to sound too like hippy dippy, but like when you have that ending, you also have something beginning. And that's kind of what the characters in this book, they're constantly feeling like their, their world is ending. And, um, that sense of dread and fear that creates its own kind of reality that can continue. So I think that just is, again, something that interests me about the place. Right. So tell us about your characters. Introduce them to us. Yep. So there is David Rizzo, who owns a gun store. Um, he is quite frustrated. He's very agitated. Um, things are not going his way. He's intending to sell the gun store. 
Um, he is in love with his son. He loves his son a lot. His son has been estranged from him, and it's kind of how he defines himself in terms of being a father. Um, so he is both a character that can be laughed at, but also um, that we're laughing with a lot of the time. He's very, um, I hope at least, uh, emotionally compelling. I was talking to Barbara about this before the event, and you know, the book is described as satirical, and I think it's definitely, it's funny, you know, I hope at least, but it's not like a low-hanging fruit SNL sketch it's satirical. It's not unkind. Yeah. That's probably the word you're looking Yeah, for. and I, I think it's really important to me that the characters feel compelling, that there's emotional stakes. Uh, it feels really um, unfair and just a waste of people's time to just kind of do cheap, cheap jokes. So um, Rizzo is someone that I, I really feel for and, and kind of like what compels me so much about fiction more than any other work is I think you can kind of really show someone in all of their complexities. Like rather than simplifying something, you're constantly making it more complicated. And that's like, I think how love is, is it's very, it's very complicated um, and it's never one dimensional. So for Rizzo, that was very much my experience. And then Nick, uh, you know, demographically is much closer to me. He's a kind of younger person in the area. Um, he moves back from New York here um, and he's struggling with, uh, you know, his own, his own kind of demons, different from his father. But uh, he experiences kind of a different reality because he grew up online. And so for Rizzo, um, television really determines how he interacts with people. For, for Nick, it's really about the Internet. And his section in the book is the second half. It's much more fragmented. There's a lot more white space. I was really trying to get at, again, with Arizona and, and Phoenix kind of being this microcosm, for America itself, these two generations that are trying to communicate and kind of talking past each other, even though they love each other a lot and just not really um, kind of able to, to find the right thing to say. I may be really reaching for it when I say this, but he has a gun shop, which is Western, and then we have not a horse, but the Eldorado. So, you know, I, I felt like, you know, you were deliberately choosing, you know, two symbolisms, at least, of the old, and the way old Scottsdale was before they decided to turn it some version of Miami Beach over there on Main Street, possibly the worst urban redesign I have ever encountered. Um, they gave up 20 parking spaces for trash cans, which really pissed me off because that was where our first store was. Right. No, I'm serious. You know, I mean, it, it, you know, every once in a while you think, you know, what, what, what are they thinking? And that was an example, but short of tying myself to, you know, one of the posts out there, I probably couldn't have prevented it. But I did think that you were, you know, why the gun shop? Was, is it because that sort of taps into the whole sort of Western ethos? Yeah, it's, to me, representative. It's, it's such a um, complicated object. Like, whenever you talk about guns uh, or you interact with a gun, you learn something about that person, right? Like, their, their entire politics, their entire sense of being can be kind of reflected in uh, their relationship to, to weapons. So it felt like this kind of great concrete object to anchor everything around. And it also um, felt kind of absurd with the advertising of guns, just like um, so much advertising in our lives. We don't even feel uh, how strange it is or how insulting it can be. Um, but when you're seeing it applied to a gun shop it's like oh that really stands out that's absurd like why would someone use that advertising method to me they must think i'm stupid but like that's what we're up against all the time with like geico ads and, and everything else just people constantly assaulting our attention so i i wanted it to be something that was um really consequential that kind of stood in for the west and stood in for so much of america and 
um, that would kind of divide the family a little bit. The, the father is obviously, he's looking for the next industry. And so for him, he thinks of guns as a way to kind of, um, you know, make himself rich. For his son, uh, he's not pro-gun at all, but he's like, I don't want my father to not be successful, so let me help him out. Um, and I think, like, we all make those sorts of concessions in our professional lives where we might be working for a company that we don't necessarily agree with, but we, um, you know, go out there every day and do it. And I think that's, I wanted to capture that with Nick's character specifically, where he doesn't identify as a gun owner, but is still working for a gun business. Some of us, <clears throat> some of us are made for corporate life and some of us are not. <laughs> Me, for example, who, yeah, would have hated it um, or did hate it when, when I was there. Um, so he's trying to choose his own small business because that, after all, is a backbone of America, too, really, you know. Um, and so what, what is his scheme, so to speak, yeah. for the gun shop? It's, it's not doing well. So, yep. you know, how does he plan to advance it? Yep. So uh, in the book... Um, David has his son uh, kind of take over what he hopes is this great marketing effort, and the son decides instead to do a, a television commercial, a local television commercial, um, and they agree to donate um, percentage of the revenue toward uh, organizations combating drug addiction in the Valley. And so there's this kind of great tension, I think, where um, you know people are kind of buying guns, which are objects designed to kill people, and then are giving money to organizations designed to help people live. And I wanted to kind of capture that tension. Uh, my wife and I are like huge Shark Tank people, and there will always be these uh, businesses that go on and are like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sell you something that uh, has tons and tons of plastic in it, but we're going to also donate uh, and save a snail every time you buy one of these things. And it's like, you don't actually care about this. It's just a way to try to... Um, you know, persuade us. And it's, it's, I was talking to uh, my friend about this the other night, but I think it also is revealing of this like kind of goodness in people that is very exploitable. And I wanted to, to touch on that in the book where, um, you know, there's desperation for the Rizzo family. They, they want to be successful. So they're willing to kind of take this risk, but then they are very successful uh, with this ad campaign. And I think it really is a testament to how good people are and they want to do good and it's really hard to do good and to feel like um you know your purchase means something in a world where we're just constantly consuming stuff is really um it, it's it's powerful so i understand the the impulse and i just wanted to kind of interrogate it and make it feel strange i'm going to do a movie recommendation i hardly ever do this but last night our, our daughter recommended that we watch the bank of dave have any of you watched the bank of dave yet well yeah, um, it's brilliant. It's British, and it is exactly what you just said. It's about a guy who has been very successful as a car dealer in the city of Burnley, Burnley in northern England, which used to be a big manufacturing city but has become kind of a wasteland. And because he has money, he loans it to people. He just gives them to people. And eventually, he's creating jobs and doing good, and he wants to start a bank. And the banking establishment wants him to have no no traction at all. They want to, and the lawyer who is sent to quash the whole thing as he spends time in Burnley and sees what effect 
this has had on the community and all decides that he's going to help it. At the end, they bring in Def Leppard for a concert. I mean, a concert to help raise money, but that's not really the point. It's it is. <laughs> I've never seen Def Leppard, so it was really great for me. You know, well, hi guys. Um, but I mean, it's exactly what you were just saying. You know, um, it's very it's it's funny, but it's touching. I I'm trying to remember. I think it's on Netflix, but you can look it up on your phone. Um, but you know, you're right. That impulse to do good, and you know, trying to overcome the obstacle and, and the, you know, the small business versus the corporation. But the thing about Dave is the only thing he does want to do is do good. Yeah. You know, he's been successful, and now he wants to share it with his community. Yeah. Yeah. It's and wonderful. Yeah, I think it's, a, I don't know, a very noble impulse, and it's kind of like um, all that it feels like we can aspire to sometimes when you're in this kind of world where your your life is defined by your work. Um, to know your work is doing good is really um, meaningful. And I think that's what a lot of people want. And I think it's what the characters in the book are struggling with. Well, you're also, what, you're writing a whole father-son story arc yeah. here about two generations divided by the Internet? Yeah, I, I didn't, I have a really strange relationship to the Internet. I was telling my friend uh, Jono about this, where I feel like the Internet is a big party. And I don't like parties. I like to stand outside parties and smoke cigarettes and wait for my wife to tell me when I can go home. So for me, it's like I don't uh, – I I wanted to be able to capture, um, I guess, how chaotic it is uh, and how it changes literally the way that we think. Um, so in Nick's section, uh, it's very nonlinear. It's jumping around in time uh, and space. Uh, and it's doing so really, really quickly. And I think, like, we've trained ourselves to be able to to think in that way. Um, we're always multitasking, if not doing seven things at once. So um, to me, that's all a function of the Internet. It's not something that, um, you know, I don't want to speak for other generations, but I just feel like it's, it's very different uh, to grow up with that. And I at least feel like I had a time where I can distinctly remember life before the Internet. Um, and... I, I'm not going to, like, say qualitatively, you know, I, it would be absurd to say the Internet is bad. But I think um, it raises a lot of questions about, like, what is a meaningful life and, you know, what are our um, private thoughts yeah, worth? And you don't have to work for things. You know, I can remember my parents buying a set of encyclopedias for us, you know, when yeah. I was old enough to go to school. And, you know, I'm I'm a trained librarian. I have a master's in library science. And, you know, we learned to catalog. We learned how to do... You know, I love being a reference librarian. I used to work in the Senate hot um, hot room. You know, I had to look stuff up in seconds to figure it all out. And now it just comes to you. And so people have become, I think, conditioned to that, but also lazy, yeah. you know, because you don't. I don't know how people teach school anymore. Well, I think it's changed novels because uh, in the 60s and 70s and 80s, it was the encyclopedic novel, these really big thousand-page novels with all of this knowledge from the author that was seen as this kind of like great achievement because you couldn't just Google something. You had to have learned these things to be able to represent them. It worked for them. And so for now, to me, what I, what I think is interesting, what I'm trying to do with this book is um, instead of trying to figure out what to bring in, what to leave out, and that becomes like what 
the artistic decision is is kind of like where can you cut where can you cut where can you be as tight as possible and that's something that like you can't learn on the internet it's something that you have to feel it's something you have to know but the other thing i think that we've really lost in this process is that it's hard to distinguish what's reliable and what isn't what's authentic and what's not because when you had to actually go to sources and look things up but now you know they can spray anything at you and and people are not trained to try to determine what comes up in Google, whether it's valid, whether AI is just going to make it, you know, so much worse. Um, and so to some degree, I think, you know, we're, we're easily manipulated. It's really 1984 come yeah. to life, and as we're currently seeing in this, you know, yeah. year of elections. And it's, again, like a function of something good in people, like wanting to trust people, wanting to... Um, I don't know, just, just believe in the things around us. So the internet is just this, this other kind of weird, crazy force that spits out answers. And that's, that's easy. And that's one reason to believe in it, but it's also just uh, wanting to think it came from other people that we can trust. Um, and so I, I understand that impulse. And I think I, I'm one of the most gullible people I've ever met. I have so many great stories about being conned and uh, <laughs> just I'll spare everyone those. But uh, my, my point was just that, um, I think it's something that the characters in this book are, are constantly coming up against, and I wanted the novel to really try to engage with the internet and to ga engage with that kind of goodness um, and that gullibility. So you have a dad whose life is, I mean, who, whatever it is, all comes from television, and you have a son who's, you know, online. So did they ever bridge it, or will that spoil the story if you tell us? I don't think it'll spoil the story. I think they're they're constantly trying to talk to each other and are struggling to do so. It just, I feel like this when I speak and one of the reasons why I love being a writer is I feel like I'm always saying the wrong thing or I'm always not able to fully express what I have in my head. And I love writing because it's a way to kind of sit with your private thoughts and try to make those as clear and precise as possible. Um, I think that they, they are able to kind of bridge that because they love each other. And I think even if, communication breaks down love is something beyond language and it's just something that you you feel and it comes with time and that's what they have so yeah i think that um they they are able to ultimately communicate but their visions of what success looks like and what maleness looks like is really different um for rizzo growing up on television that's the language of myth and the marlboro man is like what it means to be a man and that's great and and nick is really confused because he doesn't he can't look at the internet for a representation of what he's supposed to be. It's all scattered and it's moving too quickly. Um, and so they're, they're trying to negotiate their own masculinity, masculinity at the same time. And I think um, that was like a really, it's a really big topic in the book and it's really important to me in general. Did you have the whole story arc in mind when you started the book or no? Right. So this is often true that um, writers seem to divide themselves up into people who plot and who know where they're going all the way through, and then people who don't plot. And so they're constantly surprising themselves. The difficulty is that you could write yourself into a corner, or the book may end up where you didn't intend it to go. So how did it work for you? Um, I actually started uh, this book on a typewriter because I was just having so much trouble writing, um, and that wasn't helping either. I was getting up before work, and I was just chain-smoking and, and hitting the typewriter. My wife was like, what are you doing? Go back to sleep. Uh, but I did that for a while, and it made me slow down, and it made me pay more attention and be more present. I ended up throwing away everything that I spent uh, on the typewriter, 
And right when um, COVID was shutting down New York, my agent and I were getting dinner and I was like, I've been telling about this book for a while. I was like, don't worry. I figured it all out. Uh, I'm going to get rid of everything I've been working on for the past two years and start over. And he was like, please do not do that. And then the city shut down the next day. And I did do that. I started from scratch, but I, something was just um, clicking, even though it wasn't plotted in that way. Again, it just came from the language and the energy and the relationships. Um, I don't know if I if I answered your question there. I feel like I'm rambling a bit. No, it was just people are generally interested in your writing process, and so that's why I asked you. You know, do you have any as a debut author? Do you have any you know advice that you might offer to another debut writer about how to do it? I think, um, you know, this is a really uh, a fickle business and an unforgiving business, and there's not any bright lights or anything there's no light at the end of the tunnel there's just a tunnel and i love that i love to work i love to work hard and that's one of the things i i love about being an artist my mentor when i was at school she read a story of mine she said you know you could be really good but you have to work hard and i was like okay well i can do that you know so if i have something i i know how to how to keep showing up and keep trying so i think that's that's really all there is um the publishing stuff comes and goes i can't tell you how many super talented writers I know who can't get anyone to read an email they write. That's just comes with territory. Um, but I think if you love the work and again, going back to like life outside the internet, there's just something really valuable about having this, this time in private to yourself. And it's a way to kind of redeem your own experience in a way. Um, so I would say just, just love the work, just cherish the work. And that's all there is. And that, and that's what makes you a writer is your, your writing. I've always been very, um, concerned when people tell me they're a writer and then haven't written in years. Like I would never say that I'm a runner I, if I don't run. That would be strange. So, um, yeah, that's that's something I think about a lot, and that's really important to me. Well, I mean, it's a problem inherent for creatives of all stripes, but especially in publishing, it's an attempt to marry creativity with business, and you know, it's an almost impossible thing to do. You know, if if I were really good, I could predict which books were going to be a success, and then I would have lots of them here instead of occasionally I have to run up to Burns. I'm actually a Burns and Noble bookseller, and in part I do that. Uh, well, it's a long story how I, that happened, but anyway. Sometimes I have to make a run up there, you know, to if they don't deliver, to snatch more books or getting books, the right number of books to the right place, depending on, you know, the demand is a nearly impossible task. And you're right that, you know, every writer is only as good in publishing as his last book. So you can have been hugely successful and then you have one that isn't. And then the business model says, you know, no. So it's very dangerous to be too successful with your first book. So you've been you've been successful. Be careful. Not too successful. <laughs> be careful yeah. that you don't become too successful. Right. No, I think you you know it's been amazing. You also have he has the benefit of a literary publisher. Scribner is a very old house and has always um, prided itself on interesting voices and really supporting them. It's a wonderful home for you. Really good to me. So they're publishing my next book as well. Well, I was so going to ask you about them. that. Yeah. Now, this book, it seems, you know, very uh, publishers generally don't want to buy just one book. They always want to buy, most of the time, a two or three book contract because it hardly makes any sense for them to promote an author and then it's over. Um, and a lot of the time it's because they think it's going to be a series. You're going to repeat your characters. But some of the time it isn't. So which way is it for you? Uh, it's somewhere in between. So they originally just bought this one book, and then I had been working on this project 
for years. It was one of those failures that I talked about, um, about a bodybuilder. And I'm, I'm just obsessed with bodybuilding. I think it's this really kind of fascinating subculture in America. And, uh, I've been working on this thing for like seven years. And in December I decided, Hey, I, I want to show this to Scribner and see if they'd like it. And they, they loved it. And, uh, so that's, that's going to be the next book. So we originally just planned on one, but it's two, it's, um, similar to this book it's set here it's set a lot of it is set in tent city jail uh my friend jake and i actually went to tent city and yeah, did a Joe tour Arpaio with Joe Arpaio oh, when he was no. there and you got tour. out alive we, really oh yeah it was it was i felt guilty just being in there because it was such a spectacle and the prisoners were being put on such display i felt really uncomfortable like i was exploiting um them in some way but it was it was an important experience to to go in there and see it. I wouldn't feel comfortable writing about it without having actually been there. And I had Jen, a great friend, who was nice enough to come with me, so I was lucky. That is a friend. Woo. So, but not these same characters. I mean, not the same characters, but they're they're very similar. No, that's okay. But it's not it's not a series in the no. sense that you have repeating characters, right? Wow. So another book in Arizona. How wonderful. Right. Would you like to take questions from the audience? Sure. If anyone has any. Tanner. Um, I, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. So the question was, how do I come up with ca characters' names? I usually keep a list of, of really interesting names that I like. Uh, they usually come from the sports world. Uh, so like there's a Rizzo baseball player. Yep. Thank you. And, uh, so I'll keep those names. And then, um, to me, it's just a, it's like this kind of weird thing where I just kind of repeat them to myself. And if they feel, if there's something there, if it's like this kind of mystical, weird thing. But if, if I feel like I can spend a lot of time with that language, because it's, the name is going to be there throughout the whole book. So years and years and years. If I feel like some sort of connection to that word, then I'm like, okay, I can put it in. Um, for some of the secondary characters, it's less thoughtful, I would say. Um, but, yeah, I hope that answers your question, Tanner. Thank you. No, I just wanted to know where you took this photo, or where this photo is. I don't know. Uh, so Scribner gave me five possible covers. And this, when I saw this one, I was like, I don't need to look at the other ones. Like, this is it. This just immediately felt like the book. And I've seen um, some people online like saying it's in different places. Like everyone seems to know where it is, and it's never in the same place. So I actually don't know <laughs> where this pit, where the image is from. I was looking up David Rizzio because he was. Um, it, it, I thought it might be Rizzo. He was the the Mary Queen of Scots, you know, that was assassinated in front of her and all the rest of it. But it's Rizzio with an I. So yeah, so you didn't steal it from Shakespeare after all. Right. Good news. Right. Any more questions? Yeah. Do you think you'll do it? Offer up a series? Um, so the question was, would I offer up a series? And I, 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 I can't say no. So like Joseph Heller um, wrote Catch Twenty Two, and he ended up like many, many, many years later writing a sequel to that book. And there was just something about it that. Um, really kind of stuck with them. And so I, I, I think it's definitely possible. Um, I do think, uh, to what Barbara was saying earlier, I, I think like, you know, some, some writers are always telling the same story all the time. And I'm, I'm kind of one of those writers. So like it's the next book and whatever I write after that, I don't think it will, um, I think it will 
feel somewhat like a series just thematically um and and just like in in voice and and that but yeah i don't um i don't have that plan yet i guess i would say but thank you for asking Yep. Um, thanks, Jono. Jono asked if I identify with the characters. I do. I identify with them a lot. I especially identify with Rizzo. Rizzo is this kind of like hapless loser and is just like trying super, super hard. And I identify with that a lot. And I think um, I think people who are who are honest with themselves and are able to laugh at themselves will be able to identify with it, too. I think like that's. Um, I don't know. That that just feels really true to me, and I really I really identify with him. I identify with Nick um, as well. I think like all of the characters in some way I I feel a kind of connection to them, and that's like part of the reason why I can I can write about them or want to spend that much time with them because I can see if not something of myself, someone else that I love in them. I'm so glad you asked that. Yes, 100%. Uh, so, like, when Joyce wrote Ulysses, he left Dublin. He went to Paris, and he became obsessed with, with Dublin. He had never wanted to write about it before, and now he was like, I really, there's something about this. And for me, every time I came home to see my parents, I was like, there's just something that's staying with me about this place. There's something that's really striking. And... uh I don't think I would have had that experience had I not left. I think I had it when I first moved here and then I kind of became home and I just, I started being less present, but moving away and coming back, I, I have that sense of like being perceptive, paying attention to things, hearing things, feeling things. And yeah, I don't think I would have had that without leaving. Distance lends perspective, right? I think so. It's like Thomas Mann writing about Venice. Yes. Yep. Yeah. No, yep. I mean, that's often true that, yep. um, you know, People are familiar with the place, and then they leave it, and then it's much clearer in their minds when they write about it. Yeah. You mentioned your mentor. Yeah, her name is uh, Dana Spiota. She's a fantastic novelist. Um, she actually did the book launch with me um, in New York. We did a like conversation like this together, and yeah, she taught me everything I know. What penetrating questions did she ask you that we haven't gotten to? Um, she was, uh, I'm trying to think of one. She, mo a lot of it was about research. I did a lot of research for the book. Um, just reading a lot of stuff. It's not, it's not that cool. The tent city stuff is cooler because we went there. Um, this was just a lot of reading, a lot of being online. Um, so before, uh, Musk took over Twitter, you didn't have to have a Twitter account to go on Twitter. So I was looking at it a lot, you know, because I felt like the guy outside at the party kind of peeking through the window every now and then. And that had a huge influence because there's a lot of social media stuff in the book. Um, and I don't think I could have written any of that without being online. But you didn't actually apprentice in a gun shop? No, I didn't. But uh, someone very close to me is fascinated with, with weaponry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I was spoiled in that regard. Yeah. I like this someone very close to me, yeah. unidentified. So. It's fiction. I have to. I have to protect people. So, yeah. Very protect your sources, Lordy. Yeah. Sounds like the FBI. Yeah. Anyone else have a question? Andrew, you're lurking back there. Is there any any question appearing from our online audience? Yes, indeed. Uh -huh. 
Um, Step out so they can see you. You always like a disembodied voice. <laughs> yes, uh, by design. Uh, that, yeah. Let's see. So our friend from Italy is tuning in, uh, Stefania. She stays up way too late, Stefania, truly. Um, well, she says uh, San Martino is an Italian surname, yep. and even Rizzo, the characters in the book, is an Italian surname. Does the author have Italian orang origins? Yep, uh, very, very much an Italian-American family and Italian-American upbringing, and I think just like Arizona, it was one of those things that became... I became more aware of it the older I got, um, and one of the ways was just through language. So there's this big section in the book about Ajita, and uh, Ajita is like heartburn, and uh, it's a really kind of weird thing culturally to name that experience, to have like this frustration. And when I was a kid and my mom was driving me and my sister around, she would tell us that we were giving her Ajita fighting in the back seat. <laughs> and then I was with my sister, and we were going to get food somewhere and her children are in the back when he's nephew and she's like you guys are giving me agita and that that was when it really like kind of started to set in for me that this was something um that felt really specific and really fun and something that i wanted to explore in my work right let's see renee would like to know she says are you working full-time as a writer if not what is your day job so i worked in sales for the past five years i was doing uh tech sales it was very very boring um, I just quit. So I just be, you know, I'm, I'm a free agent right now. I'm drifting. Um, but so yeah, I was, I was working full time for, for the past five years. Let's see. Anybody else have questions? I was afraid of this. All right. It's hard to scroll through yeah. your phone and keep up with the Facebook questions. Let's see. We, okay. Um, also, Stefania, question: Did you did you put intentionally the fire gun shop in the story to play with the lights and shadows of this argument? I don't live in America, so I can't understand completely, but I know that this is still a controversial theme to talk about. The guns, specifically, the guns, yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I have a lot of friends here who know. I think I've always had a kind of provocative streak, and I like to kind of go toward what's taboo and to to have fun like that's i think what good comedy does um so it was it was very very intentional i knew i was kind of playing with fire and uh that, i think that that's what like just good art does in general you were talking about that the cover and a few minutes ago and it's just perfect don't you guys think it's a great cover yeah they did a um, great job you know it reminds me of these you see these strip you know kind of like strip mini strip malls that have like you know all the bases covered, the massage joint, the cash checking place, um, you know, easy loans, the gun shop, and then at the end is usually the 12-step meeting hall. I forgot and, uh, the liquor store. Yeah. Liquor store, of course, yeah. Now it's cannabis. Yeah. There's actually a restaurant with an entire cannabis menu that has a billboard up on, um, I think, Van Buren or something. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm They're serious. all over the place, yeah. I, well, yeah, there is, there is a gentleman there who had another question. Yeah. Uh, fiction, fiction writers. Um, I mean, they're definitely dead. I think it's hard right now, uh, especially funny writing. Um, is just it's a really hard thing to pull off. Um, because like 
in person, people will be polite and your expressions will tell them to laugh and they'll accommodate that. But on the page, when someone's alone, like there's no one telling them that it's okay to laugh now. Joseph Heller is one of the funniest writers I have ever read in my entire life. And it's not just Catch-22. He has a novel called Something Happened. And there's this one section where he's just describing how he's afraid of exactly five people at his office. And those five people are afraid of five other people. And he just, like, does the math of all this fear within the, the office. It's a great, like, workplace satire. George Saunders is one of the funniest writers I've ever read. Uh, his short stories, um, especially. And he is alive, so... Um, uh, Thomas Pynchon, David Foster Wallace, like that whole group, comedy is really important to them. Um, and maybe the single funniest book that I've ever read is uh, White Noise by Don DeLillo. I think it's just, it's just really, really, really funny, start to finish. Is that the Department of Hitler Studies? Yes, yeah. Jack Gladney. So the main character in the book is named Jack Gladney, and he founded uh, the Department of Hitler Studies at his university, but he doesn't speak German, and it's this big insecurity for him. And he's hosting a conference on Hitler, and he's trying to, uh, secretly learn German so he can speak it at the conference to introduce people. Um, it's it's really really like a great uh, satire of academia and, and universities. I have to use the word word document. I just I keep it really really simple. I I would love to be able to handwrite or use typewriter. The typewriter is so obnoxious. It's so loud. Which is fun for me, but miserable for everybody else. And then the building where I was doing the writing before, it was a huge, huge building. Tons of people live there. So I was like, I don't care if I'm bothering people, which was very rude. But now I'm in a much smaller place. Um, I don't want to be the rat bad neighbor anymore. So I, I feel like I just, I know there's like writing software out there that kind of helps people um, kind of keep track of previous drafts. But to me, that just... Uh, just kind of alarms me. I think, I, I think yeah, it's yeah, called, right? Yeah. And publishers require now that you submit electronically. So at some point, even if you wrote it on a typewriter, somebody to. would have yep. to key it in, you know, to, to make it work that way. Yep. There are people who do write on typewriters, really love that. Lauren Esselman still writes on a typewriter, doesn't he, Patrick? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and there are people who write longhand. And then um, we've had several. And then, you know, it's an interesting thing. That um, that process of writing it longhand, when you move it onto a screen, you see things that you didn't see when it was in longhand, and it becomes quite different. Um, so there's some advantage in you know moving from one, movement, yeah. yeah, because all of a sudden you have a different way of looking, or you know, different stuff sticks out at you, yeah. and whatever it all is. Did you have any other questions, Sarah Patrick? You, you kind of touched on this a little bit, but just uh, what are you working on now, and can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so the next book is about a bodybuilder in Arizona who goes to Tent City Jail. Um, did a lot of fun research for that. And uh, right now I'm just kind of I'm working on some short stories. I'm doing some edits on the bodybuilder book. And then I really, really, really want to try to write a New York novel. I've I've lived in New York now for some time. I know it's it's laughable. It's a laughable ambition, but I I feel like the fact that it's laughable means I have to try to do it. You know, you know? There's, there is a special thing about a New York novel. I mean, as opposed to any other place yeah. in America, it's right? Such a, it's such a genre. But New York got hammered so much during COVID. It's yeah. not the same place. I stayed. At, I never left. It was the worst decision I made. No, I was like, I, this is going to be nothing. We'll be fine. It was just me and my wife locked away, and it was crazy. One of the bad bets I've made in my life, staying well, through that. 
<clears throat> I wasn't actually going to go into that, but yeah. it's just that the city is, I mean, I had to go up, um, I had a, a relative who died in, not from COVID, in May of 20, what was, Gary died, 21, do you remember, Patrick, or 22? Well, anyway, and, you know, there were all these temporary shelters out on the street made of plywood for restaurants, you know, because they couldn't see people indoors because there wasn't enough space and you know and if you weren't careful you could be killed at any moment in an intersection by a bicycle delivery guy you know I mean it was it used to be you had to worry about taxis but no now it was the bicycle guys and then the vacancies you know the huge amount and it's just I don't think New York has got its moho back I really I, don't I think it I think it has it just looks different it looks really different I for don't the, think it's there yet I'm come person, visit, come visit I'm me. a I'll person who's out. still selling a co-op at 29th and 6th, and I can tell you for sure Maybe I could that that market has yeah. not yet come back. <laughs> right. I'm the co-executor of my sister's estate, and um, you know, I would love to be able to. I would love to be able to sell it, but the real estate thing is no longer, you know, what it was. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So good news for you. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, a New York novel. Is a is a thing apart. Yeah. So good luck. Thanks. Thank you. Anybody else? No, nope, we stunned them into silence. All right. Well, it's been wonderful to talk to you, Alex. Yeah. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Warmest and, and felicitations thank you so much. for yeah. your successful debut. <laughs> Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.